This morning, God's Word comes to us from Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We are going to begin our reading at verse 18 and then read through the end of this chapter. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. What we hear now is God's Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, for those who are visiting with us this morning, for the past several weeks, uh, we have been looking together at the attributes of God in our Knowing God series. And I think we will have one more sermon uh, in this series. We'll have that next week. Uh, this morning, uh, we come to an attribute of God that perhaps we don't think about very often, knowing God's wrath. And I think when we think about God's wrath, it's easy for us to have one of two responses. 
One response is to simply ignore this part of God's character. After all, isn't God loving? Isn't he merciful? Isn't he compassionate? How can you talk about the anger or the wrath of that kind of God? We tend to ignore God's wrath. Perhaps the other response is that we misunderstand God's wrath. And perhaps that is where we are today. We look at uh, anger and wrath and we project that upon God and say, how is that possible that God, a righteous God, a holy God, can also be a wrathful God? So today we talk about what it means that we confess uh, the perfections of our God, all of his perfections, including knowing God's wrath. Well, first of all, we have to remind ourselves that God's wrath is not like our wrath. We, as uh, humans, uh, sometimes get angry over very serious things. Perhaps we get angry when we see the ravages of sin in the world. Perhaps we get angry when when in our own families we see our children making choices that will be harmful to them. And over these serious things, we get angry. Sometimes we get angry over unimportant things. Uh, maybe, uh, Maybe dinner is five minutes late getting on the table. We get angry about that. Maybe, Maybe the broccoli was overdone. We get angry about that. These unimportant things. Sometimes we are angry for no reason at all. We're simply having a bad day. And someone walks up to us and says, good morning, and we bite their head off because we're just angry. Is this the character of God's wrath? Sometimes over unimportant things. Sometimes God's just having a bad day, and so he's angry. God's anger is not like human anger. That's not the character of God's wrath. God's wrath is not a quick-tempered wrath. God does not fly off the handle. God does not lack any self-control. We are that way sometimes. Like I said, we we just blow up. Is that the nature of God's anger? It is not a quick- tempered wrath. A text that we have turned to uh, many times in this series, uh, the text from Exodus chapter 34, a text which I would commend to you for memory. Uh, This is a beautiful text to memorize, to remind ourselves of who our God is. Exodus 34, God revealing himself to Moses. Verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, not quick-tempered, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A God who is slow to anger, doesn't fly off the handle, not quick-tempered. This is the, the character of God's anger. It is not a 
cruel anger. Sometimes in our anger we are cruel, we are unjust. God's anger is righteous in its character. A couple words to try to describe that. God's anger, God's wrath, is judicial. God's wrath comes in response to human sin. It is the righteous response to sin. How does our text begin? Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven for no reason. That's not what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is a judicial, just response to ungodliness, to unrighteousness. We might use the word judicial or perhaps the word uh, retributive. I know there's a lot of big words this morning, kids. I'm sorry about that. A judicial, retributive. God's wrath is in response to what he sees. God's wrath is in response to what we have done. If we go to the next chapter of Romans, chapter 2, we read there in verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's judgment, God's wrath is retributive. It's in response to what we have done. It is a righteous anger, righteous in its character. And so we cannot impugn God because he is a wrathful God. Now, we wouldn't do that um, uh, with a human judge either. We talk about God's wrath as being judicial. If a human judge had someone standing before him who was guilty of a heinous crime, the evidence was overwhelming the man most certainly was guilty, and the judge meets out the proper sentence, a harsh sentence, we don't say to the judge, well, how unloving. How could you do that? Don't you have any mercy? Don't you have compassion? Of course he does, but he is sitting as a judge, and he is meeting out a judicial punishment. God's wrath is judicial. It's in response to what we have done. And so we cannot impugn God in any way to say, God, aren't you merciful? Aren't you loving? Aren't you kind? When his wrath is revealed. His wrath is judicial. It's retributive. And in some way, we say the revelation of God's wrath is occasioned or perhaps even chosen by sinful men. Twice in this passage, we read about an exchange being made. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. There was an exchange. Man exchanged what he knew for something else. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. There was an exchange. Rather than, rather than knowing the truth of who God is, man made an exchange. He exchanged the truth for a lie. And as such, God's just retributive anger 
comes upon men. Three times in our text, we read that God gave them up. God gave them up because of what they had done. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The revelation of God's wrath is because of man's sinful choices, and God gives them up to that which they desire. They exchanged the truth, and they embraced the lie. We said God's God's, uh, wrath is righteous. It is judicial. It is retributive. No one goes to hell by accident. No one goes to hell by accident. But the ungodly, the unrighteous, the reprobate, throughout their lives, again and again and again, choose against God. They exchange His revelation for a lie. They do that persistently. They do that deliberately. And in eternity, God says, I give you now exactly what you asked for. A life without me. No one goes to hell by accident. God is righteous. God is just. And his wrath, his anger is that as well. It's in response to what we have done. There is uh, evidence throughout Scripture of the wrath of God. Some people say, well, you know, this is just a theological construct. You're talking about theology here. The Scriptures bear witness to a God who demonstrates His anger and His wrath. And I think, children, if you thought a little bit, you could think about some stories in Scripture where we see the anger, the wrath of God. Maybe you would think about the flood. Now, we talked about the flood in terms of God's patience, how God waits 120 years, but eventually the flood does come. God, in response to the depravity of man, comes and in his wrath sends a judgment. The flood as evidence for the wrath of God. Maybe uh, you would think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These these cities that are still characterized and connected with sexual perversion. And God would come, although he would warn, God would come and rain down fire and brimstone. Rather than the gentle rains of heaven, God rains down fire and brimstone, an evidence of his righteous wrath. Maybe, kids, you would think about, about Israel coming out of Egypt and the ten plagues. Those plagues visited upon Pharaoh, visited upon the Egyptians as an expression of God's wrath. We talked several weeks ago at the beginning of this series about Leviticus chapter 10 in connection with God's holiness. Nadab and Avihu, who who worshiped God in a way he had not authorized. And what happens? They are struck dead. God's righteous anger manifests itself. 
Now, if you're talking with someone on the street or a friend about the wrath of God, the first thing many people say was, but that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament God. And yeah, the Old Testament God, he was a God of wrath. We know that. But we live in the New Testament. And the New Testament God is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of compassion. That Old Testament God, yeah, we don't like him so much, but we like the New Testament God. What does the New Testament say about evidence of God's wrath? I would take people uh, to a text like Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5 says this, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. A demonstration of God's righteous anger against those who would lie to him. You've not lied to men, you've lied to God. And the response of lying to God is that Ananias falls down dead. And then, beyond that, his wife comes in, verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it? You have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. God's righteous retributive justice in the New Testament. God's anger. We could go a little farther back in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 12. A a description of King Herod, Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. In the New Testament, when God is not given the glory which he deserves, when man takes that glory, God acts decisively. If you think about the New Testament teaching, More than any other New Testament figure, Jesus spoke about the wrath of God. Kind, loving, gentle Jesus 
more than any other New Testament figure, he spoke about God's wrath. We think of the woes he pronounces in Matthew 23. Woe to this person and woe to that person. Woe to those who fail to acknowledge God. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, we think of his letter to the Thessalonians. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read this. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. For since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. God coming in judgment. Our text, the wrath of God, is being revealed. There is ample biblical evidence. This is not simply a theological construct, but God has revealed himself, not only as loving and merciful and and righteous, but as a wrath, a God of wrath. Who will send his anger upon those who persistently, deliberately refuse to recognize him? I think we should notice, maybe even perhaps in passing, that God sends his wrath... God judges people. God judges people. Now, why do I say that? God judges people, not just sin. Uh, Maybe you've heard this. Uh, God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin. God loves the sinner, but He hates the sin. Now, I'm not sure where that phrase came from, but I can tell you it did not come from Scripture. God judges people. He pours out His wrath on people, not upon sin. In the flood, sins were not drowned. Sinners were. God's anger is poured out on sinners, on people. We read in verse 27 of our text. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The the men were punished. The men received the judgment. We read earlier from Psalm 5 where God says very clearly, David says about God, you hate all who do wrong. Not just wrongdoing. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. It doesn't destroy lying. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. God's wrath is a wrath not against sin, but a wrath manifest to sinners. Deliberate, persistent rejection of God. And we say, well, what hope do we have? 
We're all sinners. We're all sinners. How can any of us stand against the wrath of God? And of course, left to ourselves, none of us can. None of us can stand up against that righteous anger. And here we see so beautifully the perfection of Jesus Christ as an offering for our sins. Christ came to to secure our salvation. He came to take our sins away. We refer to that in theological terms as expiation, the removal of our sin. And it's a wonderful blessing to have our sins removed by the blood of Christ. But that's not all that Christ does. Again, we could go back a couple chapters in Romans to Romans chapter 3. We read there, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. God made Christ a propitiation. Now that's another really big word, kids. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation is simply a covering. Propitiation is a covering. What's being covered by Christ? Not a covering of our sin, that's expiation. What's being covered, a propitiation, is a covering of the wrath of God. God's righteous wrath covered by the blood of Christ. We see that pictured so beautifully in the Old Testament in the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. Remember the story about the Day of Atonement? There is a goat, and the priest confesses all the sins of God's people on that goat, and that goat is sent out into the wilderness never to come back. A picture of the removal of sins, expiation. But don't forget, there was a second goat, one that would be killed and whose blood would be placed on the mercy seat as a propitiation. The mercy seat, that symbol of where God would sit in His kingly, justly authority, and the blood to cover the wrath of God. This is the perfection of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Not only our sins removed, but the wrath of God covered. This is the glory of the gospel that we continue to call out today. Know the fullness of what Christ has done for you. Know the fullness, not only of sins removed, but an angry God, a wrathful God, that wrath covered by the blood of Christ. God calls us to put our, our faith in that Jesus Christ for the fullness of salvation. You may think that a sermon on God's wrath probably not the most appropriate for the day we come to the table of the Lord. Isn't this the love feast? But I would say this morning's sermon is very appropriate. Yes, we have the privilege of coming and dining at our Lord's table, but there was a cost involved. The blood of Christ was shed not only to remove our sins, but to take that righteous wrath, the fullness of God's wrath, poured out on Christ that we might come and dine and fellowship with Him. That's what we remember and believe when we take the body and blood of Christ. 
We come in ease. We come in comfort. We come to dine. We deserve the wrath. But it was poured out on Christ, making that propitiation, that covering of the wrath of God, that we could come and dine at the table. Our God is a God of wrath. Not like our wrath, not capricious, not not short-tempered, a judicial, retributive wrath, but a wrath that was turned aside by the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can come, we can celebrate, we can know the perfection of God. Yes, wrathful, just, righteous, and also merciful, loving, kind, gracious. All of His perfections. And we are the beneficiaries of these gifts. And we are those who are welcome to come to the table. Let us join together in a time of prayer. Lord our God, truly this morning we have spoken of things that are far beyond us. We so easily, O God, create you in our image. We project our anger upon what your anger must be. Help us to be informed, O God, not by our own experience, but informed by your holy word. We praise you for all of your perfections. We praise you that you are loving, you are kind, you are merciful. We praise you that you are righteous, you are just, and a wrathful God. Help us, O God, to recognize and appreciate that wrath poured out on Christ, that we are the beneficiaries of your blessings at his expense. May we never stop praising you for who you are. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. I invite you to turn to the back of your Psalter hymnals to page 151 in the back section as we read the formulary for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Reading from page 151 in the back of the Psalter. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was delivered up to be crucified, the Lord Jesus instituted the sacrament of Holy Communion, saying, This do in remembrance of me. In obedience to that command, we now celebrate this memorial feast. We therefore bid all of you who have confessed your Lord, who have truly examined yourselves according to the admonition of the Apostle Paul, to come in contriteness of heart and assurance of faith to commune with Christ in the partaking of this Holy Supper. As we now draw near, let us consider for what purpose the Lord has instituted His Supper, namely, that we should keep it in remembrance of Him, and that He, by this sacrament, should nourish and refresh us unto eternal life. To observe this Holy Supper in remembrance of Him is to proclaim our Lord's death until He comes again. In partaking of this supper, therefore, we remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior promised to the fathers in the Old Testament, that He is the eternal and only begotten Son of God, 
that he assumed our human nature in which he fulfilled for us all obedience and the righteousness of God's law, and that he bore for us the wrath of God, under which we should have perished everlastingly. We remember that he was bound that we might be loosed from our sins, that he was innocently condemned to death, that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God, that he became a curse for us to fill us with his blessing, and that he humbled himself on the cross to hell's deep agony, which wrung from him the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That God might never forsake us. We remember also that he was buried to sanctify the grave for us, that he was raised for our justification, that he is exalted at God's right hand, and that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And we remember that the shedding of his blood has confirmed for us the new and eternal testament of the covenant of grace. As we thus commemorate the death of Jesus Christ, we are assured that he will truly nourish and refresh us with his crucified body and shed blood to everlasting life. This he promises in the institution of this supper, saying of the bread, this is my body, and of the wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. With these words, our Lord directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on the cross as the only ground of our salvation. He also assures us that he, by his death, has taken away our sin, the cause of our eternal death, and has obtained for us the life-giving spirit. By this Spirit who dwells in Christ as in the head and in us as his members, he brings us into true communion with himself and makes us partakers of all his riches of life eternal, righteousness, and glory. By this same Spirit, he causes us together with all true believers to be united as members of one body in true brotherly love. As the Holy Apostle says, seeing that we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And inasmuch as it is said to us, as often as ye eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come, we are assured by this holy supper that our Lord Jesus will come again to receive us to himself, and that we shall sit down with him and drink with him the fruit of the vine in the newness of our Father's kingdom. That we may now obtain these blessings let us implore God for his grace. Let's pray together. Merciful God and Father, whose grace abounds beyond all our sins, we pray thee that in this supper, in which we commemorate the death of thy dear Son, thou wilt so work in our hearts, we may yield ourselves ever more fully to Jesus Christ. May our contrite hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, be nourished and refreshed with his body and blood. Yea, with him, true God and man, the only heavenly bread, so that we may no longer live in our sins, but he in us and we in him. So confirm us in the covenant of grace, we pray, that we may not doubt that thou wilt forever be our gracious Father, nevermore imputing our sins to us, and abundantly providing us with all things necessary for body and soul 
as thy dear children and heirs. Grant us thy grace, that we may cheerfully take up our cross, deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all temptations and trials, expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, who at his coming will make our mortal bodies like his glorified body, <clears throat> and take us to himself in eternity. Answer us, O God and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Spirit belong all praise and adoration now and evermore. Amen. As we now come to the table of the Lord, let us with heart and mouth confess our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And let everyone say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. For all who have requested permission to come to the table, we welcome you. 